we have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God, and God remains in them. This is how love has been perfected in us, so that we can have confidence on the judgment day, because we are exactly the same as God is in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love because God first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters or siblings are liars. After all, those who do, don't love their brothers or sisters or siblings, whom they have seen and can hardly love, whom they have seen, can hardly love God whom they have not seen. This commandment we have from him. Those who claim to love God ought to love their brother and sister and sibling also. Good morning, everyone. Oh, we are a little sleepy this morning. <laughs> I won't make you do it again. You can be sleepy. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. And uh, I know we're, we're starting off also a little heavy, right? We have what a powerful song um, to bring us out of passing of the peace, but, but very weighty. Uh, and for those of you who are like, oh my gosh, Jonah, we've, we've been in this series for so many weeks. <laughs> Another lie I heard in church was that this series was done. Um, <laughs> we are, I promise, in the final week of the series Lies I Heard in Church. Um, and really what happened was that when we were trying to talk about the afterlife and the ways that those conversations um, have, have become hurtful, uh, we needed two weeks to do it. And over the course of working through all of these lies that too many of us heard in our church communities, a pattern kind of coalesced for me that it felt really important to talk about. Um, and that pattern is institutional or religious or spiritual abuse under the guise of love. Now, I, <laughs> I want to give, you know, a content warning that that's what this sermon is about, and that might bring some stuff up for folks. So as always, this is a space where you are free to respond to the needs of your body, the needs of your nervous system. If you want to get up at any point for any reason, to grab a coffee, grab a drink of water, use the restroom, maybe take a little walk around the block. There are lots of spaces, lots of ways that you can be faithful to this community, including leaving during the sermon if you have needs to attend to or if you'd like a break. It's a gorgeous day outside. We also have the living room. So please make full use of this space um, in ways that support your, your system. Um, but we want to talk about uh, the nature of love in spiritual community, because love is the thing that gets thrown around a lot, right? And our culture loves love, but doesn't love to define it very well. 
Anybody know that song that, uh, that's like, every breath you take? <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Right? Every single day, every word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. And what's interesting about this song is that Sting, who wrote it, was like, this is not a love song. This is, he described it as a nasty little song about control and power and surveillance. He knew what it was about. But our culture, so confused about the nature of love, has embraced it as a love song. Apparently, a couple told Sting once, oh, we love that song that you wrote. It was the main song at our wedding. And his response, his response was, oh, good luck. Because when we confuse power and control and possessiveness and jealousy for love, we set ourselves up for harm. And when people who are interested in, in controlling one another use love as a framework, it can lead to some pretty awful abuse. So because we are all as a culture so confused about the nature of love and the nature of abusive relationship, 40 years ago, domestic abuse uh, survivor advocates put together a tool um, that's often referred to as the power and control wheel. Now, this is a visual image that helps people identify the patterns of abusive relationship. Um, and we're going we're gonna to throw it on up here. Uh, so this was a tool developed in the 80s to help uh, cisgender women specifically identify patterns of abuse in relationship with cisgender men. And I just want to acknowledge that obviously any person of any identity experience can be abused in a relationship or an abuser in a relationship. And statistically, we actually know queer and trans people are, are at an elevated risk for abusive relationship. So this framework has some kind of assumptions about gender and heteronormativity and cisnormativity in it. Um, but it is kind of a long-standing tool, and one of the things that surprised me was how long it has been around, given some of the, the pieces of information in it. And so this is, a, this is something that you can Google. If you want to take a closer look at it, obviously there's too many words, too many tiny words on the screen. If you want to Google it right now, on your phone, or at some other time, you can just put in power and control wheel, and you'll find some version of it come up. And then before we get too far into this, I want to talk about if you are experiencing any of these dynamics, if, you're, if, if as we talk about this, you're like kind of starting to feel a little tense, a little like, oh, this is the situation I'm currently in in any form, I just want you to know that I'm somebody that you can talk to about that. Cameron is somebody you can talk to about that. And if you don't want to talk to either of us, um, there are some great hotlines out there. I won't spell them out here, but if, again, if you just Google the phrase domestic abuse, the domestic abuse hotline will come right up in big, <laughs> big numbers. Um, and there are lots of people who are really experienced at helping folks identify if they are in a bad situation and figure out how to get out if they are in one. But when we talk about some of the lies that too many of us have been told in church, we start to see patterns that are identifiable on this power and control wheel. 
Now, it's hard because a lot of people think about abusive relationships strictly in terms of physical violence. And if you see, if you can see, on this image, all the way on the outside, the outside circle is physical and sexual violence. But all of those things surrounding the, the core of it are like held together by abusive relationship dynamics. And so that's just one element. And we know that many, many churches have long histories of physical and sexual violence against people. But it can be really easy to think of those as isolated incidents and to say, oh, well, that's, that's such a shame. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from all of these other dynamics. All of these other dynamics are necessary to create a culture in which this kind of violence is consistent and permitted. And as we talk about this, if you're kind of sitting there going like, well, this isn't my experience. Like, I had a healthy relationship to church throughout my life. Um, you know, I haven't been abused by these systems. That's fantastic. And I'm really, really glad that you haven't. But lots of folks in your community have. And just as if you were to enter into a close friendship or romantic relationship with someone who had recently been in an abusive dynamic, it would be important for you to be thoughtful about that. As a community with many folks who have been abused by churches and bad theology, we as a collective have a responsibility to one another to acknowledge and understand those dynamics so that we can heal and we can protect one another. So with all of those kind of frameworks in place, I want to talk about the ways that these conversations, these lies that we've been told, right? Oh, the Bible is clear and I know how to interpret it and you don't. Who you are as a queer person or a trans person is fundamentally wrong and makes you bad. Um, lies about Jesus's whiteness and equating Jesus with dominance and white culture. Um, lies about how to relate to your own gut and instincts, telling you that your flesh is weak and therefore you're not allowed to trust your heart. Lies about what will happen to you in the next life if you disobey and how you'll be rewarded if you obey. All of these things are, are functional along these abuse frameworks in a lot of churches. And what abusive church community does is characterize God as abusive, and God is God. And so it sets this thing up where you are expected to be in relationship with an abusive God and call it love, and that primes you then to accept abusive, controlling uh, behavior from your church community. So we're just going to go through these eight characteristics. Now the one that we might be most uh, familiar with over the last several weeks, and if you want to go back and listen to any of these that you have missed, um, they're all available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, um, this whole series. But we've been talking a lot about what could be characterized as emotional abuse. So the wheel defines it as putting you down, making you feel bad about yourself, um, calling you names, making you think you're crazy, making you feel guilty all the time. Now, in a church context, you may think, well, church makes people feel good, makes people have a sense of belonging, and hopefully that's true too. But there are churches in which you get the messaging a lot that you are, for instance, totally depraved that you are a worm, 
that you are a filthy rag. Words are thrown around like wretched and unworthy. That whole concept of like Catholic guilt, it's a joke that we tell about a pervasive feeling of guilt that people carry at all times. And that's one of the things identified on this wheel as a, as a characteristic of abusive relationship is when a partner makes you feel sort of preemptively guilty, guilty all the time. So if we feel guilty all of the time, if we feel wretched and unworthy of love, and then if we are also told, don't trust your heart, it'll lead you astray, don't trust your gut, don't trust what your mind is telling you, trust what I'm telling you. These are characteristics of abusive relationship. A second characteristic is isolation. So in the context of intimate relationship, this is controlling what you do, who you see and talk to, what you read, where you go, limiting your outside involvement outside of the relationship, and then using jealousy to justify actions. In the context of an abusive spiritual community, this is saying, oh, you shouldn't listen to that music. You shouldn't read that book. You shouldn't dabble with the devil. You shouldn't surround yourself with unbelievers. You cannot be unequally yoked in your relationships. And any justification of saying you should have limited contact with people outside of the church. Well, God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. And so it justifies this possessive and controlling behavior by saying it's what God wants. God's just jealous for you. God just wants you so much. And this is one that can be really confusing in relationship and in, in church spaces. Because we want to be wanted. We want to be loved. There is something that we have romanticized about jealousy in our culture that says, well, jealousy, possessiveness, is just a marker of how loved I am. When in fact, that possessiveness that controls a relationship that says you cannot have outside influences, you cannot have other people contradicting me, you cannot have something that's going to lead you astray in your life, that's control, that's surveillance, that's abuse, that's isolation. And it gives you a limited ability to then question or push back on anything problematic within the, the context of the relationship or the church. How many of us have grown up in a space where we are expected to spend several days a week at church? Now, if this is just coming from like a joy, a love of community, a choice of how you're spending your time, that's fantastic. But if there's pressure around it, saying that you don't love God enough or love your church enough if you're choosing to spend time in other places or with other people. That's, that's that isolation again coming in. And anytime God's possessiveness is held up as a good thing, that should be a really red flag. Another characteristic of these relationships is using children. Now, in the context of romantic relationship, this is making you feel guilty about the children, using children to relay messages, and then threatening the well-being or connection to the kids. This one might seem a little bit harder to piece together, but how many times have we seen, you know, the documentaries come out, Jesus Camp and otherwise, where kids are having these really intense experiences at young ages, and adults are told that if they don't engage with their children in this particular way, 
Their children will go to hell. Their children will be tortured. The urgency cultivated in parents is that if they, don't in, if they don't involve their children in a very specific way early in the church, then they won't save their souls. And this is where, again, we see the doctrine of hell coming in to be an abusive dynamic. Now, the, the fourth one we'll talk about is really interesting to me because, again, this is back in the 80s. And it's certainly cis-normative, heteronormative in its framework. But even back in the 80s, domestic abuse survivor advocates were talking about male privilege and talking about the ways that tightly controlled gender norms are a characteristic of abuse in those types of romantic relationships. So what they write is treating her like a servant, making all the big decisions, acting like the master of the castle, and being the one to define men's and women's roles. Now, we've talked a little bit about this all the time. We talked a lot, <laughs> we talked a lot about this last summer when we did Pure Trash, our purity culture series. But a lot of the ideas around purity culture, around queerphobia, transphobia, are really about protecting one extremely important, extremely abusive dynamic of highly controlling church spaces, and that is strict adherence to gender norms that are hierarchical and defined by men. Have folks seen the umbrella or heard the hierarchy? God is over all, Christ is over man, man is the head of the household, the household includes women, women are over children. And who gets to define all of that? Well, supposedly God defines all of that, but truly what it is is the men who are defining all of that. And so this idea that men can define the roles of men and women, and there is an inherent hierarchy in that, and men are the ones that are supposed to be leaders in the household, men are the ones who are supposed to be making all the major decisions, that, that this creates a necessary dynamic for violence. So when we're talking about these strict gender roles, know that in totally secular spaces, this has been identified as a key component for abusive and controlling dynamics that lay the groundwork for physical and sexual violence. Next, using economic abuse. Now this is gonna have a particular dynamic in a, in a uh, one-to-one romantic relationship. They say preventing you from keeping a job, taking your money, not letting you know about or have access to family income. But economic abuse of spiritual communities comes up a lot here. Anybody ever feel a little twitchy during offering? Anyone ever feel a little uncomfortable when we talk about money and giving financially here? It's not out of nowhere. And it's not just because everybody hates talking about money. It's because there is such a strong history of the church pressuring people to give beyond their economic means, pressuring people to save their own souls or the, ones, or the souls of their loved ones by giving financially, and then using that money in undisclosed ways to benefit people in power. That is economic abuse. The church, time and time again, this is what, a huge part of the, what, what the Reformation was about. This is the 1500s, a big split in the church happening in part 
because a few people within the Catholic Church, which was like the church at the time, were saying, oh yeah, your people that are like in hell or in purgatory, you can get them into heaven, give me all of your cash. And some people were like, you serious? But a lot of people were like, yes, sure, anything. My loved ones are being tortured. Have everything that I have. That's economic abuse. And we see that over in the 700 Club being like, if you give, God will bless you. You're struggling financially. The way to get out of your financial struggle is to give me your money. <laughs> but obviously, there's a dynamic there. I mean, like, it, it is. It's laughable. It's ridiculous. But there's a dynamic of power there that is functional enough that it works. And lots of people have been deeply financially, materially harmed by those abusive power actors that then go on to buy private jets and do all these other ridiculous things with their money, right? So economic abuse is a real and potent dynamic in abusive spiritual communities and churches. Coercion and threats. This is threatening to do something to hurt you or threatening to leave you if you disobey. Now this, again, is where we come to that doctrine around hell and eternal torment. This is a fundamentally abusive teaching that says God is loving, but if you piss God off, God will hurt you forever. And that's your fault, right? Threats, coercion to force relationship, that is abusive. And the intimidation, which is the next one, this, they describe it in the context of, of a human relationship as, you know, uh, physical threats, looks or gestures, which is really about kind of reinforcing those threats to say, I want you to police yourself. I want you to be looking at me at all times to see whether you're doing this right or whether I'm going to be mad at you. And I think that's one that kind of culture of intimidation is something that a lot of folks have experienced in churches around doing it right. Am I wearing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I saying the wrong thing? Do I fit in here? Am I allowed here? What's the dynamic? And I think that that kind of self-policing, that's connected to that always guilt, that always fear. And when the scripture tells us that perfect love, God's love drives out fear, it's because that fear is a fear of punishment. The fear that we feel in church is a marker of the fact that the church has caused harm and is threatening harm. And so when we're trying to engage with these dynamics, we have to understand that that intimidation is about policing the self so that you're the one constantly monitoring yourself. And then the last one, I promise, is minimizing, denying, and blaming. So it's making light of abuse, not taking your concerns seriously, saying that it isn't abusive, shifting responsibility, and then finally saying that you caused it. So in the church, this is massive cover-ups of uh, sexual abuse scandals. This is repeated exposure of abuse by people in power, but complete abdication of responsibility by those structures to, to have accountability. Um, people saying, oh, I screwed up, I'm gonna step out of the limelight for two years and then come back when everybody has forgiven and forgotten. But it's systems ultimately not taking any responsibility and saying, this isn't a big deal. Or, you know, set laying the groundwork for that kind of thing by saying, what were you wearing? How were you behaving? Why, you know, especially with women, 
telling women that having friendships with men or being in a room behind a closed door with a man is what is, what is generating abusive power dynamics or sexual or physical violence, right? Minimizing, denying, and blaming. Now, all of that, again, super heavy. But we have to be able to identify these things, and that's why the power and control wheel was made in the first place, so that people could say, hey, this isn't an isolated thing for me. This is an actual dynamic that happens over and over again in abusive situations. So how do I get out? And there are all kinds of support structures. And I have found that Zao as a community, because there are so many survivors here of spiritual and, and church abuse, there are so many of us who have come through that. We actually are pretty practiced at helping people get out, hold space, get support. But domesticshelters.org writes a little bit about this wheel, saying, the wheel helped women identify abusive behavior and helped teach those less familiar with the issue about domestic abuse. But it didn't help women learn what healthy relationships looked like. Now, this, going through this list, like, I can't think of a greater argument for, like, ditch the church, right? Get out of there. Don't look back. You don't need this. This is harming you. And I think it would be really easy to say, just like, get out of the church and don't look back. And that's what some people need to do. And bless them, and God blesses them, and, and holding distance and boundaries and space is an important way to heal when we've, when we've come through an abusive relationship. But like romantic relationships, most of us got into those relationships in the first place because we crave connection and support and meaning-making. And so what happened, what these advocates found, was that folks coming out of abusive relationship, because it had been either so prominent in their life or all they had ever known, they didn't have a framework for what a healthy relationship looked like. And this is the lie that we're really debunking today. The lie is that church has to be this way. That this is just what church is. That if you want access to God and spiritual support and community, that that's the price of admission. It's all of these like messed up power dynamics. But that's a lie. There are healthy, beautiful, supportive ways to be in spiritual community, just as there are healthy, beautiful, supportive ways to be in romantic relationships that are not abusive. So um, uh, Melissa Scalia, former director of, of DAIP, said this about how they responded. Their experience with relationships, that is, people who had survived abuse, was that one person was in control and the other person was being controlled. The women didn't have any reference point for what a relationship was supposed to look like. And so they created another resource called the Equality Wheel. And we are going to wrap up by talking about that and talking about how an equality framework can help us not only identify healthy spaces, but create healthy spaces. Because we don't want, as a community, to replicate any of the abusive dynamics that are so prominent in so many churches. So what are our responsibilities to one another, to ourselves, right? So things that we need to look out for to make sure that we're not experiencing uh, harm here at Zao or in other religious communities. And also, what are the guiding frameworks? What are our expectations for this community? What are our obligations and responsibilities to one another to create healthy environments? 
So we're going to go through those same eight. So in contrast to emotional abuse is respect. And that may seem simple, but it is respecting another person with non-judgment, emotional affirmation, and valuing their opinions. How different is it to be in a church space where your opinion, including your disagreement with the pastor or the leadership or other people in the pews, is valued rather than looked upon with judgment and suspicion? Having an emotionally supportive place that says your experience matters, your opinions matter, your emotional experience is valid, that is one way to have healthy church relationship. In contrast to isolation, there is trust and support. This is about supporting your goals and who you are, including outside of the relationship, outside of the church community. Respecting your right to your own feelings, friends, activities, and opinions apart from the church. Saying, hey, you've got hobbies outside of church? That's amazing. Hey, you have friends who don't believe what we teach here? Cool. Being able to have spaces to think, to, to have distance, to have other parts of your life makes your experience of spiritual community richer and it creates a built-in accountability because if we start doing stuff that's wild and weird, then somebody on the outside is going to have a, a better vantage point to be like, that's messed up. It is important to have relationships outside of your core spaces because it helps to provide perspective. And a healthy community trusts you to be able to do that well and supports you to be able to do that well rather than, rather than isolating you and saying that you can't do those things. In contrast to using children, the Equality Wheel talks about responsible parenting. So they say be a positive, nonviolent role model for children. And I just want to contrast that. So note the difference between being a role model, for instance, versus controlling the beliefs of children, right? So modeling is very different than a rigid set of beliefs and expectations. And, and we play that out here. You know, one of the ways that we engage with children's church is to tell stories and then have kids think through what it means for them. Right? Rather than saying, these are the sets of beliefs that we hold and therefore you hold. It's giving kids critical thinking skills, asking them their opinion. It's also bringing in that model of respect and mutuality and supporting children's ability to become themselves while role modeling what we think good relationship is. But it's so different than controlling children and certainly it emphasizes having a responsibility towards children rather than objectifying children and using them for our own ends. So the way that we can have a healthy church relationship with kids in it is to know our responsibility to role model and support them becoming themselves rather than using them as pawns or, or manipulating parents or trying to, to form them into little versions of ourselves. Now here we come to the gender roles. In contrast to male privilege, the equality wheel has shared responsibility. So what they say is mutually agreeing on a fair distribution of work, making family decisions together, relational context basically, 
individual personhood, saying there is no one person at the top who gets to decide what category you are in, especially if that category is subhuman or sub-male or sub-adult. We as a, a community have a responsibility to one another to negotiate how we function in community and who takes care of what, not based on what uh, sex assignment you had at birth, which determines your value and your responsibilities due to predetermined gender roles, but in mutually loving, respectful relationship that says, who are you? What are your gifts? What are your boundaries? How can we do this together? There are healthy ways to do that. And really, it's about totally breaking down those preconceived gender roles. Five is that economic abuse. Now, in contrast to economic abuse is economic partnership. It says making money decisions together and making sure both partners benefit from financial arrangements. So this is a tricky one, too, because I think there's another moment where we say, well, let's just not talk about money at church. Let's just not do it. Trouble with that. We live under a capitalist society. We have to keep our lights on. If we didn't talk about money at church, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have the material means to exist, right? And what, we're, what we've learned in previous sections here is that not talking about something doesn't make it better. We don't have to completely abandon relationship to avoid abuse. And to be in relationship in a place where we care for one another's material needs, we have to talk about money. So how do we do that in a way that's not abusive, not coercive? Well, first we ditch the guilt. No one is under any moral obligation to give money to the church or to anyone. <coughs> you are a good person, beloved by God and loved by this community, whether or not you contribute financially. Another thing that we can do is make our money decisions together. What are we putting our money towards? Who is in charge of that? Let's make sure those decisions are transparent. In all of that, we have to make sure both partners, aka in church community, all members, are benefiting from the financial arrangements. And that's why we talk about give what you can, take what you need. We want a financial situation that is not just about people pouring in and pouring in and giving of themselves until they are depleted. We want a collective where we are all saying, what do we have? What do we have that we can throw in? And what do we need that we can receive from one another? And that's spiritual and emotional and relational, but also financial. That's why we have a mutual aid program. That's why we work with one another to provide for each other's needs. A healthy financial relationship here is about transparency, openness, and, and people knowing that the relationship does not hinge on whether they keep shelling out. You can never give a penny here and still be a beloved member forever. And if you want to contribute to the material well-being of this community, you can, and you can be a part of making decisions about what happens with those resources. Now we come then to that coercion and threats, the intimidation, and the, the contrast to those ideas about hell and threats, threatening, threatening to leave, threatening to cast you out. There's negotiation and fairness, seeking mutually satisfying resolutions to conflict, 
non-threatening behavior, talking and acting in a way that makes you feel safe and comfortable expressing yourself and doing things. You should not feel under threat in church. We can support one another's ability to take risks together. And there is no threat that you will be banished. There is no threat that you will be tortured for eternity. There is trust that the relationship is good. And finally, in contrast to minimizing and blaming that happens in abusive relationship, there's honesty and accountability. Accepting responsibility for the self, acknowledging harm, admitting when wrong, and communicating openly and truthfully. We can be an accountable community to one another. We can offer one another the kinds of supports that it takes to be vulnerable and to build strength through trusting relationship. We can be accountable when we screw up. We can have these kinds of conversations about how much harm so many of us have experienced in church. And we can have those conversations when we screw up here and someone experiences harm at Zao, And we need to deal with that and offer one another safe space, supportive space to name harm and to be held accountable and to address patterns and dynamics of harm. We are capable of this. And I think that one of the lies fundamental to abusive church is that it is the way it is because human beings are flawed and terrible and so the only truth comes from God and the only real love comes from God and we can't question it. But one of the premises here at Zao is that you have the divine breath of God in you, that we all have the resources of the loving God and the spirit of God within and through us. And we together can actually build a supportive, healthy, accountable relationship together. And we should settle for nothing less. It is a difficult task. But equality is just the beginning of the kingdom, right? This is the lowest bar we can clear. And we can clear it. Because when we have trusting, supportive relationships, think about the difference between abusive relationship, no relationship, and supportive relationship. Supportive relationship resources us in ways that we could not imagine when we are stuck in something abusive. We can do more together to heal than we can do apart. And we are called to do so by the God who loves us, who heals us, who works in and through us, and promises us more and more and more. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we long to be in healthy, supportive relationships. Teach us to see those red flags when things have gone wrong. Help us to be accountable to one another, to offer one another the support that we so desperately need. May we build a community made in your image, not the image of an angry, possessive God who is threatening hell on anyone who disagrees or disobeys, but God, the image you give us here in scripture in 1 John, the image of perfect love which casts out fear, the image of love which loves and cares for a brother, a sister, a sibling in genuine ways. God, may we not fall for the lies and abuses of our culture that say that those things are love when they are actually fear and punishment. But God, may we find support and kindness, gentleness, passion, and connectedness in your love. And may we offer that same love to one another. Amen.